Hey everybody, welcome to this week's Q&A. It's Friday morning, I didn't get a chance to shoot these yesterday, so this will all go out the same day. And if you catch this the day it's released, make sure to tune in to the Whatnot stream with Greg from Laser Bear and I. I think that's going to be a lot of fun. But anyway, let's jump in and see what's up for this week. First up, over on the YouTube support line, a couple from Scotter140. First, they were a little disappointed how many of the games at Retro World Expo were connected to a little LED TV via composite or RF. They'd be happy to round up some CRTs and bring them along. I think they'd be open to that. So Retro World has always done a really great job making sure to match decent displays to whatever console they're plugged into. So in the case of something 480p native, uh, you know, like Dreamcast, most of the GameCube library, I would totally understand if they were connected to flat panels, both because they're easier, you know, just overall better to hook up to get a 480p signal out of. But, and, you know, I guess that's the debate that neither of us are talking about. You know, should GameCube and Wii be on a CRT, a multi-format CRT or a flat panel? I don't really know about that. But I do agree that when they're connected to 16 and 8-bit consoles, basically everything that only outputted 15 kilohertz, it should be up to a CRT. But Retro World's always done a really good job with that. So I would be willing to bet that something happened. The person who delivered the CRTs got sick. You know, somebody left the door open on a storage area and some of the CRTs go wet. I don't know. I'm making all that up. I'm just making the point that I agree. Uh, and I do think that I would like to talk to Lance and see about getting more and getting, uh, cause a lot of the consumer TVs I have here, I got them for free. I got them for the very specific reason of doing a fun video on it to show how you might use this particular CRT if you found it, but I don't really have a use for 25 consumer CRTs, so I would also like to donate. I'll talk to Lance about that. He's a real cool guy, so I'm sure he'd be open, and I'm sure there was a reason for that too. Next, sorry they didn't say hi last year. They'll be sure to say hi next time. They're just a little awkward and couldn't think of anything to say. That's I am I'm the biggest dork, you know. You never have to be awkward in front of me because no matter what it is that you think you're gonna do, I'm sure I'm gonna be weirder. Just come up and say hi. The only thing I always suggest though is if this is how we've communicated, make sure to say, Hi, I'm Scotter140 you know, uh, over on the YouTube support and we talk in Q and A's because I talk to so many people all day long and I can't tell you how many times I've been standing at an expo and somebody will walk up like, hi, I'm Jennifer. And, you know, oh, hey, nice to meet you. And we'll have a five minute badass conversation about nerdiness and retro gaming and whatever else. And all of a sudden they'll be like, oh, by the way, I'm Pikachu one, two, three on, you know, from the forums. And it's like, why didn't you say that? You're, now you're not a new cool person that I've met. You're a person that I've been talking to for years that I already knew was cool. So that's the one and only thing. Come up and say hello, you know, but just introduce with whatever name that we've been corresponding with and where I guess is sometimes helpful because especially anybody with retro in their name I always joke around with other people with retro in their name about how like how are we all going to be deciphered from each other so yeah but feel free to walk right over um, also congrats on the 300th podcast, even though they've only been a supporter for a year and a half or so, they've definitely been frequenting, frequenting the website way longer than that. And retro RGB has been a huge help. So thank you. Nope. Thank you. Without people watching and, and giving a shit, none of this stuff would happen. So thank you very much. One more from Scotter. And I don't think I have the answer to this, but I thought this was a pretty cool scenario, so I'm very happy to talk about it and would love to default to the community for any answers. But they met somebody who uses a Macintosh Quadra 650 computer to compose music, and they've been doing so for 30 years on that computer and want to continue to do so that way. And the problem is they're no longer able to make their old Mac print to a modern printer because they don't make ink for the old one and there wasn't an easy way to connect them. So I would love to default to all of you smart people and wonder how exactly could they do that. My guess is something like RetroNAS, where somebody might build a print server module that can be installed so that you could have older computers think that, you know, whatever network computer protocol was compatible back then is on the network, but it just does the translation to the modern printers. That would be my number one choice for something like that, just because RetroNAS is becoming such a, an amazing tool. Like when when I first did the launch video, uh, I thought it was an awesome project, but it just keeps getting amazing. So I would like to default to all of you for that. Do, you know, what 
what solutions would you use? Are there existing ones available? Is there like parallel to USB converters that could spoof a 30 year old computer to a modern one? But it's a good question and one that I'm curious about the answer to. Now over on Floatplane, RetroShawn wanted to chime in regarding recording over Thunderbolt. They didn't see any issues with the video quality on Floatplane. I didn't see any issues either. Uh, it's I'm really happy that Sean took the time to say that because very often, the, or not very often, most of the time, videos on Floatplane look better than on YouTube, which is fair. They're a small service catering to creators. YouTube is catering to everybody on the planet that wants to upload a video that they watch twice and never again. So I do totally understand that part of it, but... I also didn't see any issues, and I'm wondering if I ever really will. I think the only time I might is 4K60 stuff where even one frame drop would matter, whereas just me talking to a camera, if I drop one frame out of every couple thousand, no one's going to know or care. So, But I do think that that's something that, uh, you know, if anybody notices something like that, please let me know. You're not nitpicking, you're helping, unless you're a horrible asshole about it. But even then, you're still helping. You're just being a horrible asshole. Um, RetroShawn also said they know a couple of reviewers on YouTube that capture game benchmark footage and they use a second small PC to install the capture device instead. The capture machine is fairly modest specs and it always seemed like Thunderbolt adapters are more trouble than they're worth for the externals. So yes and no. As with almost everything that I do in my, you know, personal nerd life, it's going to apply to stuff that I talk about here. And this is one of the biggest projects I've ever been a part of, but I'm trying to point people into the right direction for a lot of their setups because most people are have been switching over to laptops when possible. The people with big PC rigs might want to use it for more than just one use. Uh, and of course, if you get a new PC that you know you have a single use for it, I want to be able to provide people with a, a long list of things retro gaming related or just fellow nerd related that you could do with that older PC. So that's why you're probably going to hear a lot of random talk PC chatter with me and other people, both publicly on social media or in these Q&As. So, you know, pre-warning, you know, sorry if that stuff annoys you, but it's all going to be part of a much, much bigger project video series and things uh, that I'm working on. Because it's just one of those things where, you know, as a development person for uh, I don't know, birth, basically, but in a professional environment for a very long time, every time I see a workflow or a setup, I also see ways to make it more efficient because that's that was my job forever. It still technically is. So I'd like to look at all of these things as a whole and say, all right, well, that's a bottleneck. That's a bottleneck. That's a cost problem and all that other stuff. So yeah, I'm going to keep talking about this, not right now, but over the next couple of months. And hopefully by the end of the year, maybe by the end of the summer, I'll be able to share more details on the projects that I'm involved with with this. But it's basically, and the goal is to save you money have a better workflow and give you a better idea of where you should spend your money. So thanks for chiming in, Sean. And, uh, you know, hopefully this project will go well. A couple of things from QXC4 over on Floatplane. Uh, first, they tried to post a long question and ended up having to test out how Floatplane deals with line breaks and stuff. So this isn't a, a super massive question, but at the same time, I wanted to share that with you, both because I thought it was funny, but also because double line breaks are what it takes in order to do bullet points if you want to post that type of question on Floatplane. So thank you for troubleshooting and testing that out, QXC4. I wouldn't have guessed that one. So yeah, double line breaks. Uh, but to the Actual questions. First, is there a name for the effect on CRTs where the picture will grow or shrink depending on how bright the things being displayed are? Yes, and I totally forgot what it was. I call it like the pulsing of it, um, and it's more likely to find that in cheaper CRTs or arcade machines because with arcade machines, the arcade operator would just calibrate it so that whenever it was in the, the darkest, most shrunk state, it was just kind of cut off. And that way, when it pulsated, you didn't see it because it came, it went outside of the noticeable area. Uh, for things like PVMs, those were just so well built with the better power supplies so that you don't have that issue at all. Consumer grade CRTs, it's probably a combination of both a better chassis, compensating for that with overscan and all of the other thing, tricks that manufacturers used. I believe I talked about this in my interview with Thomas, the person who was creating the open source CRT chassis. So you might want to reference that one for a real answer because he's got way more knowledge on this stuff than I do. Uh, but it, the first time I really noticed that problem was in, I believe it was the Neo Geo Minicade that I had built. 
and it was driving me nuts and I was trying everything and I was like, Hey Jose, do you know what the problem with this is? He's like, yeah, the problem is you're so used to being <laughs> playing on PVMs that you forgot that CRTs did this. It's like, Oh yeah, you're right. I did forget. <laughs> so yeah, I, I forgot what it was called, but it's just, you know, you could get a better chassis, a better power supply. You could, there's a lot of stuff you could do, but for me personally, I would just overscan it and solve the problem that way. Uh, unless it was a PVM or BVM, and then I, it would really need a cap replacement at that point. If it's on a high-end monitor doing that, then that's probably an issue. On an arcade monitor or low-end CRT, it's just the way it is. Um, also, they recently picked up a SCART to composite and S-video converter to feed a consumer CRT from their mostly RGB setup, so the, the perfect use for that device. They did every type of troubleshooting I would have asked, so good nerding, um, but the problem is still there, that the S-video signal going to everything but the PVM produces like a horizontal interference going down the screen, and it does not happen on the PVM. And I don't know why this is happening, but I do have some guesses. But if I'm wrong, feel free to both make fun of me and correct me in the chat. But I do feel like my guess is rooted in uh, past experience with this. And I think it's just inherent to... Well, first of all, I think the diagonal interference problem is inherent to the conversion. Because you're using existing chips to convert the signal, but it's missing one incredibly important part of the signal, the, the timings for it, the, you know, the, the clock speed and all that other stuff, which is why the Sony CXA chip that's inside your Sega Genesis can produce perfect composite, well, perfect-ish composite video from the native RGB signal. But if you take that chip, that same chip, and you put it in an external board and you feed it RGBS from that same Genesis, you're going to get improper or, or colors on the composite video line. You're going to get interference and dot crawl and weirdness. And it's because everything needs to be synced up with itself. And it uses the other signals on the motherboard to do that. So it's much less of an issue when you go to S video. And unfortunately I've seen the same converter, not the same model, the same physical one pass between a few different friends where one person will have zero issues and everybody else won't have it work right. And it's just a combination of many things that you can't really fix. So it's just inherent to how these converters work. And I was told the only way to really fix the issue is to do an analog to digital conversion and then a digital back to analog conversion. And that would slow it down just enough so light guns won't work, which is the only bad part. Whereas light guns will work through your converter, which is something that's kind of important because if you have an all RGB setup and you're going through your Tink 5X or your OSSC onto your beautiful flat panel, but you picked up an old composite video only CRT that you want to use for light guns, the converter you bought might be perfect if the composite video worked right. And, you know, so even if you had to buy this adapter where it would work right, you might lose light gun support. So it's kind of an interesting problem. Uh, but those are all just my guesses on why the problem is there. My guess on why the PVM doesn't show the issue is because PVMs are built to be universally compatible. So PAL, NTSC, whatever, it accepts whatever signal that you send to it and usually does a very good job making that signal work. B later BVMs... Those were, you know, the A and H series. That's a totally different story. Even the multi-format D series has some issues, but basically any 15 kilohertz only PVM should handle all of these things without any issues. And that was my guess as to why it doesn't manifest there. Just because your consumer TV might go, whoa, this isn't part of the NTSC specification that I've been expecting. Whereas your PVM is like, whatever you got, throw it at me. So I think... Those are my two guesses on that. But once again, I have no problem being wrong. So if I am, please somebody jump in and let me know because I would like to correct it. But I think my guess is at the very least going down the right path. Josiah Wilson wanted to follow up on the issue with Xbox 360 through a sync combiner into the multi-sync monitor. It appears the issue had to do with DDSP, which was part of the Extron RGB 192. So I totally forgot. Depending what multi-sync monitor you're using, yeah, that might actually be an issue. And that's where the HD15 Descart might fall short. Because as far as an XNOR-based sync combiner, it's as good as every other one out there. But doing that type of sync combining isn't compatible with every monitor, including D-series BVMs when it comes to Dreamcast. 
uh, A-series BVMs for a lot of stuff, you have to do it a little bit differently. So using the Xtron Sync Combiner and toggling each of the switches on and off should fix the issue. So uh, great troubleshooting. Really sorry for not remembering that part of it. And in fact, I just did a test for Tito the other day with this exact same thing after your question. So if I had read your question if I had, if it had been flip flopped, it, it probably would have been. I probably would have been reminded to say that. So yeah, um, but you did test going directly into a Dell LCD VGA monitor, and it worked fine. So uh, you know, sorry I couldn't help, but it sounded like you figured out the issue yourself, which is always awesome. Also, of course, my answer would include a bird attempting suicide. Well, I'll tell you, the bird was actually fine. I went out to double check; it really did fly away. And uh, I think it was just stunned and, and flew away like that. So yeah, don't worry, the bird was fine. <laughs> Green Devil said, thanks for the suggestion to look into Unraid. It's incredible and proven to be a fun project so far. Hell yeah, I agree 100%. Any plans for RetroNAS to be added as a Docker container? They think the GitHub listed as a planned feature, but didn't know if I had anything else to add. They could probably run it in a Linux VM using the Linux install video as a guide, but a container would certainly simplify it. Um, yeah, Ed Space Invader 1 said he was going to do one. I think he was very busy the past couple of months, so I'm not sure how far along he got. I know he did up some betas, but the one thing I can say is that right now, if you create a folder on your your existing array that just call it RetroNAS or something or RetroNAS VM, whatever. And then you do a Debian virtual machine and point it to that folder. Then if anything else ever is added in the future, you could just simply delete the virtual machine, which is not part of that folder, and then just load up the new Docker. The only thing you do not want to do uh, maybe you do, but most people would not want to do is create the VM, create the folder inside the VM and store it there because then you would have to copy the entire ROM directory back over if you wanted to switch. Um, this, you know, my answer to this would require a little bit of Linuxing, which I tried for about five minutes once and went, oh, I'm too busy for this. I'll get to it later. And that was a month and a half, two months ago. So I don't think it's going to be too bad, but you might want to just have a conversation in any of the discords with Linux people just to understand how to do that. I would love to whip up a very quick guide or video if I have the time to do it, but it should be that easy. It should just be create the directory on your array, create the VM, point them together, and then that's it. Whatever you switch to in the future would just be a RetroNAS install, which is like five minutes. So would not mess with copying the ROMs. Um, lastly, any quick tips for Unraid users who are also retro gamers with large libraries of files? Honestly, it would be use RetroNAS to help organize those files because you could take all of your ROMs and put them in the pre-configured directories. And one of my favorite things about RetroNAS for what we do is if a new platform comes along. So let's just say like you have everything in these main directories and now you want to use Mr. So that's perfect. You hit that button and then all of the symlinks are created and now your mister could connect remotely without copying the ROMs. But let's say you also want to use a Raspberry Pi based solution and you also want to, you know, use PS2 or whatever. You also want to use software emulation. All the symlinks are created that point to the original ROM locations. So there's no multiple copies. There's no, it just, it makes my life so much easier. The only other quick tips would be if you're not, if you want to use Unraid's extra features, you have to have a little bit of Linux knowledge. So to get your array set up, to get your drives loaded, to get your, you know, to everything else configured, it is a learning curve, but it's fairly easy. And there are some strange quirks with Unraid that I would love to talk to the, the team about, but overall it's worth it just to use it as a NAS. But the moment you cross over to do other stuff. So I want to, I used MakeMKV to rip my disks directly to the array. That was a little bit of tweaking the first time because I just had to figure out what the device was called and switch it when I switched PCs. That wasn't a big deal, but VMs with capture card pass-through and streaming and testing, hold off for that. That's one of the things we're working on, in, unless you're a Linux nerd and, and you already have the ability to test that. And if that's the case, message me because I could drag you into the team of people that are trying to solve these issues. So yeah, the short version of that is any tips for Unraid users who are also retro gamers, stay tight or sit tight for the big features, but for smaller features like, you know, ROM sorting, 
definitely look to combine Retro-Ness and Unraid in some way. And, you know, the other way you could always do it, too, is just try to, you know, you could load all of your files in the Retro-Ness style directories and use a Pi to link it. I don't know. To be perfectly honest, I do think just doing a Debian VM and linking them and figuring out how to do that would be much easier than anything else. But great questions, and I'll hopefully have a lot more guides and stuff on this coming up in the next year. Mad Mardigan recently picked up a set of GameCube Prism component cables, the new ones from Retrobit, and when they used them for the first time, they heard the sound of the game booting, and they heard kind of a pop and fizzle sound going from the left to right speaker, and then nothing. And by nothing, I'm going to assume you mean no video or audio, but I'll get back to that. They checked the chain pretty well, but it's really just going directly into a RetroTINK 5X, which should have no problem with anything from a GameCube. And S-Video still works okay. So they're wondering, was it the component cables or was it now the GameCube is fried or something like that? Retrobit did offer to replace the cables under warranty, so they'll be able to try that when it gets here. But that's, that's an interesting one. So if the issue was that you got video but no audio then I would say that that was just a weird issue with the get, uh, the cables themselves. You might have to get a replacement, which they're already sending, so no big deal. But if both the video and audio went out, that could be a few things. I hope it could just be the cable, because I don't care how good a company's Q in it, or quality assurance is, there's going to be stuff that slips through the cracks, always. It's just the way life works. Hopefully that's it. But if you plug it in, if you have access to any other GameCube or any other digital port adapter, I would try that first just to make sure because you don't want your GameCube killing you know, any of these adapters. And so I guess the safer thing to do might be to, if you have a friend that has a GameCube with a, G, a digital port or something, try it there. But the fact that you didn't have anything connected to it beforehand makes it really hard to figure out what the root of the issue was. And, you know, these things are very old now, so it's totally plausible that something could have gotten into that port over the years. Some tiny little pieces of whatever, you plugged in the cable and it shorted some pins together. But the fact that it still runs with S-Video is a good sign. At the very least, maybe your digital port has issues or maybe it could be repaired but the fact that the gamecube is still running is a good thing so i don't know that's a i would i would just try to test those cables on a known good gamecube and then on yours next time just to see what happens also thank you very much for the kind kind words i really appreciate it and yeah uh, i meant what i said about this year being the year that i truly try to show everybody that i am just bob from retro rgb and i'm really just here to highlight all of the amazing creators out there who just deserve the world to know them so thank you for the kind words uh and i hope your gamecube checks out Jonathan Levine has a question about 75 ohm termination on BVMs. For a monitor that doesn't have auto termination and that requires terminators on the unused outputs, what happens if they remove the terminators and output to a switch hooked to a consumer CRT? That's exactly the same thing. It just now you get to split the signal without harming it. I always talk about Y circuits and how you should never use them for video, but the way these BVM and PVMs work that have ins and outs, it's okay to be able to chain them that way. They just have to have some termination at the end. So that termination could be a switch, it could be another TV, it could be the terminators that you put on the back, it could be any one of those things. So um, I think that would be perfectly safe, I've done it a million times, and the only thing that you would want to think about is if one color suddenly gets way too bright or way too dark, something might be messed up. Change your cable, change your connector, but overall it's totally safe. Uh, and to answer your last part, you know, the question is perfectly worded. That was exactly right. And um, I, I think your, your setup is would work perfectly, but let me know if you have any other questions. Logan said there are a lot of PS2 games that are on their wish list, and they're leaning towards getting the HD collections of those games on PS3 due to the fact that they have a PS3 and the PS3 supports HDMI natively, the textures and resolutions for the games are updated, and the PS3 supports 16x9 resolution for the games, and because I don't have a PS2. The question is, do I foresee any issues or hurdles with those versions being playable long term? I'm concerned there might be a day one patch or something that renders them unplayable or difficult to back up. And they like to buy things that last that last whenever possible. Should they invest in a PS2 with an HDMI mod and get the original versions instead? So costs 
accuracy and experience are what you would always want to look into in these scenarios. And I think that is the order that I would always recommend. So cost, you already own a PS3. You might be able to pick up these games for very cheap. So that's by far the cheapest way to jump into this. Whereas getting a PS2 with the eventual HDMI mod, I mean, minimum 500 bucks, I would guess just, just a guess, but that's what I think it would cost for the console to pay a modder, to buy the chips, to have everything installed. What else needs to be done with that? Did you want a mod chip? Did you not? So that's just a number. You know, I'm sure people are going to get mad at me for even saying that, but that's fine. <laughs> that's just my guess. It's a lot of money. It's a lot more money than just buying a couple of games. So cost, accuracy, and experience. The accuracy is like if you said, I want to get uh, original Street Fighter or do I just play the Street Fighter collection? That thing has like 7 million frames of lag and really great artwork with it. Yeah, I would never recommend anybody do that because it's just such a terrible experience that it's not going to feel like the same game. It's just going to be laggy and stuff like that. I think it was the Street Fighter one. There was a couple of those anniversary collections that were beyond terrible. The lag was just shameful, and I don't really understand why anybody would have would have made a game to would have made that game that way but on the flip side there's been plenty of stuff that the remakes are excellent and there's no need like i love the wonder boy ones those were great remakes and i i just thought that you know if unless you were really looking for that original experience then the accuracy and how good the new games were i thought that's something that most people would actually be interested in but the experience the last part did you grow up with a PS2? Did you like that whole press the button and, you know, wait for the tray to come out and you hear the loud fan? And, you know, is that the experience that you're looking for? Is that important to you? It's the same reason why people would still go out and buy a Genesis, have that recapped, have a triple bypass put in, buy a 32X, have that recapped, um, you know, buy all the custom cables. Like there's there's definitely validity to what experience you want versus I'm just going to buy a mister and play everything and setup's going to be cost and setup are going to be infinitely easier, but that's not the same experience. That's not take your game off the shelf and open up the box and look at the manual and hold the cartridge. And it's just not necessarily better. It's just a different experience. So I would, that is basically my advice for all of this stuff. Um, the one thing I would suggest, though, is check out the exact games that you're looking to buy and see if any notable reviewer has anything to say. Does Digital Foundry have a review on it that does a frame rate analysis and all the crazy stuff they do and kind of just step down from there to anybody else who digs into these and has opinions? It's really hard to tell because some people have beautiful camera and lighting and they do their shots well and they talk so confidently, but they have no clue what they're talking about. So that one's a gamble. Uh, but I would research that and see. And if the ports are good, I mean, and you don't have to worry about things like day one software updates, you already own a PS3. That seems like a pretty awesome way to go about doing it. So hopefully I laid that out properly enough so that you and anybody else listening could apply this to the same scenario. But if anybody has any questions or, you know, or, or wants to, well, more specific stuff, let me know. I'm not an expert in the PS2 and PS3 library, so even if you did list the games you wanted to play, I don't think I would be able to to really offer anything there, but hopefully I could at least point everybody in the right direction. Next, from the Remora, does anybody know of good replacement controller membranes for the original Xbox controller, either one of them? I personally do not, but hopefully there's somebody out there that's paying attention to this stuff and knows a good, reliable source to get quality replacements. Next, they wanted to update on the SNES scenario they had where they lost composite video after doing a mod. Basically, they just cleaned everything up and then started doing a recap and it started working. So it could have been a bunch of different things then. It could have been a short. It could have been original caps gone bad. It could have been a lot of stuff, but it's very cool that you're able to get that working. And unfortunately... Unfortunately, almost all of these consoles are going to require a cap replacement relatively soon, within the next few years. Um, but fortunately, the SNES doesn't have very many that need to be replaced. So it's not nearly as big of a job as like a Saturn or a Neo Geo CD that have like a million caps in them. Um, also, they wanted to let me know that they found Sanwa style buttons that are concave, not convex. So like 
like scooped inwards. Because during the uh, mini Mr. Cade video, I talked about how I wanted more of a US feel just because that's the arcade that I grew up with. So I got the convex buttons instead of concave. And uh, I'm looking over at it now. And I do prefer San Juan most of the time these days. I, to be honest, I really enjoy both, but I think if I had to pick one, it would be the Sanwa, but I'd really like to look into the concave style because I think that might be neat. Maybe that's something I would prefer. Maybe that's the best of both worlds. I'm not really sure, but thanks for sharing, and uh, I'll definitely give those a shot at some point on some controller I use. Tiago Santos has a 4K TV that does a great job scaling progressive scan low-resolution sources, but when you feed it 480i interlaced, the game mode is disabled and it does a pretty bad job scaling and I'm sure adds a ton of latency to it. So they're looking for a solution to get around this specifically for PlayStation 2. They don't really play consoles that are older than that. So they want to know what are the best alternatives that could de-interlace 480i. They don't want to justify the expense of a RetroTank 5X just for the PlayStation 2. So they wanted to know some choices. I have a few choices. The perfect solution doesn't exist yet. The perfect solution would be something like a RAD 2X plug-and-play device that does motion-adaptive deinterlacing. There's Mike Chi has shown some prototypes, but it's a global part shortage, so I wouldn't expect anything like that for about a year. I could be wrong. It could be in the works right now, but I, I'm not being coy about this, like trying to pretend like I don't know. The truth is I don't know, and I don't think the developers know either. The part shortage is pretty brutal. So eventually, that would be the solution for you. And even if it was 200 bucks, it's still cheaper and designed for the PS2, but it's not available today, and I don't even really know if, if one is going to exist. So in light of that, or in lieu of that, whatever, um, here's the options you have now. I personally think your best option for this would be making your own GBS control because you don't need any of the extra fancy features of the all-in-one. You don't. I don't think you would even need to do the clock gen mod because you're only using it with a PS2. I think that building one of those yourself, feeding it component video input, and then outputting to a VGA to HDMI converter, one of the very, very cheap analog to digital converters, not a scaler, and sending that to your TV would do a really good job. And you could use the GBSC scaling, so you could even send your TV 1080p, or experiment and see what's the best combination of both. But I think that would be your best bet. I think you, if you could do it yourself, you could do it total, including the VGA to HDMI converter. You could do the total solution for under 50 bucks. I, if you have to have someone else make it for you, you should be able to find somebody in Europe that could pull that off pretty easily. But I think especially for the PlayStation 2, that's going to be your best bet because of the motion adaptive deinterlacing and the low cost. Now, some alternatives that you could go through are you could just get a PlayStation Rad 2X, but you're going to have Bob D interlacing, which the flicker drives some people crazy. Other people, if you put on scan lines along with it or a smoothing filter or whatever else, actually it would be the smoothing filter on the Rad 2X that doesn't have scan lines, but that does smooth it well enough for most people to not care. And it's plug and play and pretty cheap. You just need to run a USB cable from the front of your PS2 to, uh, to power it. So just get one of those neat right angle one so you could barely see it that would be my next suggestion just because it's plug and play you don't have to worry about anything you plug everything in you leave the smoothing filter on the downside is you would then have to switch to a different set of cables for 480p so that's why the other solution you could do is get a retro tank mini and some s video cables but then you would need to switch over to component video cables when you're doing 480p and that's another reason why the GBS control is a good choice, because when your PS2 switches to 480p mode, you could just use it to either pass through 480p or scale that to 1080p. I would try both and see what looks best. Uh, both would be, you know, similar in performance. So I, I really think that's probably, if cost is a factor, going to be your best bet. Make your own or, or get one made. Um, and they have, you don't have to get the full all-in-one kit. There's a few sellers that just sell pre-made GBSCs in like a plexi case or something that are, aren't too expensive. So you might be able to get that delivered for a hundred bucks plus pick up one of those. Just go to retrorgb.link forward slash cheap DAC and you can see what I'm talking about. They're like 20 bucks and it goes from VGA to HDMI. So 
I really think for today, that's your solution. And I think the other reason why it's good is because of this mythical adapter that doesn't exist yet comes out where you could just plug it in and get motion adaptive deinterlacing. Now you could use that GVSC for a million other things. Now it doesn't become your scaler. It becomes a tool in your toolbox that even if you only use it a few times a year, you're like, yeah, so glad I have this. So hopefully I pointed you in the right direction. Shorjur said they're currently preparing their setup to be exclusively RGB, and they need some way to get composite to RGB until they've modded those consoles. Do I know of any transcoder similar to the CoreU that transcodes to RGB instead? Or should I just buy the CoreU and a comp to RGB from Mike Chi? It would be neater with just one box instead of two. Uh, so I completely understand that exact scenario. That is a very common scenario in retro where maybe you just haven't had time to mod your NES 2600 or whatever else yet for RGB, or maybe you don't want to. Maybe you just want to leave it exactly as is, but you want to go through the same switch. You don't have to mess with you know, different inputs or different signal formats. You just run it all through and have it all work. The unfortunate answer is today, right now, the only answer that I know of is CoreU and the Comp to RGB, the two boxes that you just talked about. I really, really do hope that people swing back around and figure this out, uh, because I also have had some CoreU issues when using VHS tapes. Uh, it changes the look very strangely, and I can't figure out why. Uh, and I keep meaning to contact the creator just to see if I can get tips, but I would love to see a device that has composite and S-Video in, that has a good filter on it, like a good three-comb filter, and then outputs RGB, and does it with no lag so that you could use that for light guns too if you wanted to. I've talked to a bunch of people about it. There's a whole bunch of challenges, and that might even actually require something like the comp to RGB being built onto a device like the CoreU. So... You know, unfortunately, that notorious clone company just cloned the CoreU again, and they didn't add anything to it. So it's they didn't, you know, which I guess is good for me because it doesn't put me in a weird position because what if that clone company did exactly what we wanted and that was the only choice? So good thing those clone companies are too busy being pieces of shit to realize that they have gold right in front of them and they don't realize it, so... Uh, yeah, unfortunately, no solution today. I do hope we get a really good solution with a comb filter, um, you know, with audio inputs too, so that in dual inputs, so you could have both connected to them at the same time safely. Uh, I really just, I want that to be a solution very badly, but it doesn't exist. So I think you're stuck buying those two adapters for now. And if you use it at all for VHS tapes, let me know, because I want to see if you get the same weird issues that I got. Couple of questions from Oliver Clare. First, they just picked up a nice Japanese Saturn that they plan on using with the Satiator. However, they live in Ireland, which is a PAL region with 240 voltage, and obviously it's NTSCJ with Japanese voltage, which is 120, slightly different than US, I believe. So they were looking for the best way to connect that and make it happen. The PAL to NTSC thing, I'm pretty sure you already have nailed because you talk about importing other consoles. So use devices that accept both signals, use displays that could and all of that. However, the power is definitely going to be an issue. And as you said, if it's something with an external power brick, get an international triad and you're done. But these have internal power supplies. So the two options are get a step-down converter or do an internal power mod. Both have issues. The number one problem is how do you know that the internal power mod for your Saturn is a good one? There's a bunch of ones out there that say that they're good, but how do you really know? Who did the testing? Where are the test results? What are the long-term results of that? And on the flip side, if you get a decent step-down converter, you should never have to worry about any of that stuff, but it's usually a big, hot, bulky device that takes up space and looks ugly. So what's the best answer? I think the best answer is a good internal power supply, one that's that's made properly, that's designed with all the safety checks in mind. It's probably going to be more expensive because anything that's that good usually is. I can't remember off the top of my head if there is one for the Saturn that I've tested. Vaguely, I remember Will from Will's Console Mods talking about one that is supposedly pretty good. I think... Will did one for the PlayStation 1 that I was using that I also liked as well. So that's definitely something to look into first. Go to Will's console mods and see. As far as what else to use, I would love to have community recommendations, but 
recommendations should come with facts. So recommendation of what's your favorite beer is 100% opinion-based. But recommendations on a good power supply should be fact-based. And saying something like, well, I bought this one for 20 bucks and it's been working for three years, that's not a fact. That's exactly like saying, I've been smoking for 40 years and, you know, I'm not dead yet, so smoking won't kill you. Like, you know, it's one of these things where you need facts to back it up. So I don't remember off the top of my head where you could find one like that, but I would start with Will. And on the flip side... I don't have any hands-on experience with multiple brands of step-down converters. So I would also like to defer to the community for that. However, I think a bunch of very decently priced ones have been identified. You can get them right from Amazon. So if anybody has either of those suggestions, let me know. And I don't mean to sound like a power supply snob, but this is one of those things where like, if you do it wrong, you end up slowly killing your console or, you know, having video and audio interference at the least. Whereas if you do it right, it's the same or better than the original. So it's worth being a little paranoid. And this is one of those times where if I'm wrong, fine. I would rather have a million people make fun of me for being too cautious about power supplies than have two people email me and say, you killed my Saturn because of your recommendation. I'm totally okay if I'm exaggerating on this one. I just think it's worthy to be, uh, to, to fear that. So anybody out there have any recommendations? I am all ears. One more question from Oliver regarding CRT shortage. They're constructing a garage and plan to build it in such a way that it's almost as well insulated and airtight as a house, as opposed to shed type construction where there's no insulation in anything. The upstairs of the garage is going to be a long-term storage area, and that's where all their spare CRT monitors are going to go. They're just wondering if I have any recommendations for what the storage conditions should be like in terms of humidity and temperature. So I am... I'm not an expert at this, but I have enough knowledge to point you in the right direction. And as always, anybody else is welcome to jump in. But anytime you build a structure and you put something up top, that's going to be the hottest part. So I would absolutely get some kind of automatic fan, same way most addicts do. My house has them that as soon as it passes a certain temperature, the fan flips on and it circulates the air out. Uh, and then it's usually one of those ones where you like pull the louvers closed in the winter so that cold air doesn't just start pouring in. That is the easiest thing because you just you know while a crt that's not powered on in a you know 120 degree area isn't the worst it's not the best either so you know with it powered on is different but you're still going to dry those caps out faster it's just if you could just you don't need to install an air conditioning but take the steps to make sure that it doesn't have to get insanely hot in there the humidity is the only thing i don't really know and I think also the factor that it's not going to be powered on just storage is certainly going to buy you a lot of wiggle room because uh, almost all industrial parts have different kind of specs, you know, temperature range and storage, temperature range and use, and they're always different pretty much. So uh, that I don't know if you would really need to worry about humidity. The only thing that I would absolutely do is if you ever bring that inside, um, and especially if it's a hot, humid day, I would just leave it in your house without powering it on for at least a few hours just to get normalize the temperature. And of course, always, if you can, just unscrew the back and then you don't even have to take the back off. Just pull it back, shine in with a flashlight and see if you see visual signs of anything. So if you put your CRTs up there and they're fine, two years from now, you pop it off, you look in and there's some capacitors leaking, don't power it on, rebuild the CRTs. The only other thing I did, which might be stupid, I don't really care if it is, but I had that, and it's like industrial strength saran wrap, plastic wrap, but it's like, you know, the, the tube is like this big, and I basically just rolled that around a CRT that I want to keep, because it'll it's eventually going to go into uh, an Astro City cab, so, or get traded or something else, but I want to preserve it to make sure it stays mint, I just recapped it, everything's perfect in it, and I just thought, like, this house had such a spider problem. What if they're only gone because it's winter? And what if they're all back soon? So I wrapped the shit out of that thing so that, yeah, sure, uh, you know, a bunch of bugs probably could get in if they wanted to, but most bugs aren't looking to infiltrate your CRT. They just want to make their nests and places. So it, the fact that I have it wrapped so many times around, I don't think I have anything to worry about because I just didn't want to have to, like, 
wheel the CRT out, take it apart and do exactly what I just suggested and pop the back off and then just have a thousand spiders run out of it. So that's the only other thing I would suggest for ones that are important to you. And that's a very cheap investment. A roll of that's like 10 bucks and you could probably do seven or eight CRTs with it minimum. So that's one of those things that I might be wrong, but I'm totally okay being wrong with that one. But anybody else uh, have any suggestions about humidity? Um, maybe a dehumidifier where you run the uh, the exhaust line, the water drip line out the back so you never have to worry about changing it, but set it to the highest setting so it doesn't run 24-7. It only runs when if it hits like 80% humidity to drop it back down. Because once again, this is something that, you know, you're not powering them on up there. You're just storing them. But even that might be overkill. I don't think... I think if it were me and a bunch of CRTs that I liked, I would definitely install the exhaust fan, but not the humidifier. But if I were building a BVM storage locker, yeah, I would also do the dehumidifier as well. So uh, just my thoughts, just opinions on this stuff. Everybody else is welcome to jump in. And as always, I'm all ears if somebody has a good suggestion. A couple are from Jason Guffey. First, they have a 4K Samsung QLED TV that properly supports 1440p resolution outputs from their PC, but not from the RetroTank or from the M Classic. Do I think this is just an eated handshake gone south? It could possibly be. And if you have one of those HDMI splitters that, you know, spoof 4K to allow you to split them to different sources, um, check like uh, any of the ones that I've talked about. You could try running through that to see if that would help. But I think it is more of a result of the weird signals that retro games output. You could try setting your Tink 5X to triple buffer mode instead of frame lock. Uh, You could try a few other things, but it's not surprising that it's not going to be compatible just because a lot of TVs aren't really programmed to understand what these PC resolutions are. And as far as the M Classic, I mean, everybody knows my opinions on those things. When they work, they work. When they don't, they don't. And they mostly don't work for me at all. It's, uh, it's, you know, it's not snake oil, but sometimes it is. So I don't know. I would just, for me personally, whenever the M Classic worked, I would be surprised. And when it didn't, I just wouldn't. I would just say, okay, it's not working. I'm going to turn it off and then keep going. Um, obviously just do other troubleshooting, like make sure the tank 5X is plugged directly into the TV with nothing between it, then plug it into an HDMI splitter and then see from there. But for the most part, it could just not work. Uh, and it's not really anybody's fault. It's just the combination of stuff. Whereas if you plug that into a 1440p PC monitor, it probably would work because those are a little more forgiving. Next, they're curious what the deal is with video signal refresh rates. Um, since... NTSC is supposed to be 60 hertz. Then why do we see things like 59.97 or 60.04? And I have to be honest, I don't think I have a great explanation for that. There, are, There is a good explanation for that. I just don't think I have a really good way of explaining it that I, I would feel comfortable with. So um, I'm going to default to Google for that one. But the next time I interview somebody that has that's an expert in this, I would love to hear somebody else's opinion because... While I'm not ever shy sharing my opinions, I I am always careful sharing what I would call a fact, and how I explain it is what makes me me. I try to make it, I try to explain things in a way that anybody with just some patience could understand them. I don't always win, but I think I would fail miserably this time. So, um, but basically, it's just fine tuning in the exact refresh rate of the content. It's the same thing like 24p versus 23997 or whatever else. It all is kind of rooted in the same thing. So, I'm going to wait to somebody smarter does an interview with me and I'll have them explain it for you. Lastly, they're just curious what updates I'm aware of on the Sani cart dumper. They found the GitHub with the do-it-yourself instructions. As much as that interests them, I'm also wondering where they could just buy one. I think you might want to check that Kickstarter campaign from the company that was making them. Um, But other than that, I don't really know. Somebody was very nice enough to reach out to me uh, to offer because they bought the parts for three and only needed one. So they ended up making extras and sold me one at a very good price. And... Uh, that's the only reason I was able to get one. And so far, the other day, I, you know, when I always talk about tools in your toolbox, right? I was smiling so hard the other day because I just, I wanted to play original Super Metroid on an unmodded one chip, with the original cart, just because I wanted to experience the whole thing. And I plugged it in and I got 
25 minutes into it, and I was like, this is great. But I kind of want to hear some of the MSU soundtracks. So I plugged it into the Sony Cart Reader, I dumped the save game file, and then I started playing with the orchestral soundtrack, which was cool. But then I switched over to the very new, um, I, I got to do a write-up on it because I like it so much, but it was the person who was taking the original samples that that music was created from and recreating the music from those samples so that you could hear the original uh, musician's composition before it was compressed down to this uh, SNES. That kind of blew me away. So uh, I would love, I would absolutely love to see something like that built in to, you know, like a, the HD or um, the Vitor Valena widescreen edition, like all in one that I could play on a CRT. But anyway, my rambling aside, taking out that Sandy cart reader and using it, knowing I had that tool in my toolbox, I, I just went, this was now worth every penny just for this one scenario. Like this made me really happy. I got to compare soundtracks while enjoying a game that I love and it took two seconds to dump the save file from that and move it over to the FX pack pro. So, uh, I agree that I love this stuff like this. I will keep everybody in the loop if I know of a store that's selling these, but yeah, I kind of smiled because I was like, Hey, Hey buddy, you got your own advice for once. You have a good tool for your toolbox that you don't use that often, but when you do. So yeah. Um, I also want to see those for sale and I hope that more people start making them, but anyway, hope I could point you in the right direction with some of this stuff at least. Well, I know this is going out later than normal, so I'm cutting it very close, but if you're around tonight, jump on the stream on Whatnot with myself and Greg from LaserBear while we go through and auction off a bunch of his 3D printed parts. I think it'd be fun, and I can't wait to have some Whatnot users see this stuff for the first time that might not have been a follower before, but hopefully we'll all gain them now. So this is one of those, like, everybody wins possibly streams. We just need a lot of people to jump in and get the word out, so I hope to see you there. But anyway... If you want to participate in these, ask any question you would like wherever you support in the latest Q&A post. The way these services work, I can't really figure out what's a new question on an old post. Plus, I really just like scrolling through in real time through all the different services like you see today. So wherever it is that you support, ask your question there. And if for whatever reason I don't get to it, it's always a mistake. The question got deleted, the, the segment got deleted. So please, if you need anything, DM me or just re-ask the question and I'll get to it the next week. But anyway, thank you all for your support and I'll see you hopefully tonight on the WhatNot stream.